Let us hear the word of our God from Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. As we begin here today, I want you to think about something that you're pretty good at, a talent that God has given to you, a gift. And uh, maybe it's uh, what you do as a vocation. Maybe it's something that you do as a hobby. Uh, Maybe it's sports related or music related or a skill of some kind like shooting a gun or uh, woodworking, whatever it may be. Uh, Of course, in our family, we think of uh, Nathaniel and some of his gifting with music. And, uh, of course, when he was younger, he was winning state competitions in music composition and even the state competition in piano the one year. Now, with this in mind, when we think we're pretty good at something, we then often come into contact with someone else who's better. When Nathaniel went to Wheaton, he realized he wasn't the greatest piano player, for example, though he's still quite good at composition, by God's grace. But as we think of these things and we compare ourselves to others, especially when we're exposed to other people beyond our normal circles, we, you might say, sometimes are put into our place. We are reminded of where we really are in terms of our talents and gifts. Well, with that in mind, I want us to come here today to, you might say, a transitional message. For the last several months, of course, we have followed Paul's teachings about sin. And the big fancy term that we use here is hamartiology, the study of sin. And this category of theology is so important for us to understand. If we fail to understand all the intricacies and so forth of the extent of our sin, then frankly, we're going to misunderstand the gospel among other specific things. This is why I've said at different times, if we fail to understand tea and tulip, the rest of it will not make sense to us. The better we understand total depravity, the more ULIP makes sense. You see how it fits together. Hence, Paul has spent these 64 verses on this topic, and he's going to continue to talk about sin. We just read it in verse 23. He'll talk about it in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. In fact, every chapter, in one way or another, he mentions it and addresses it. Depending on how you count things, what we have seen in this section is Paul addressing probably about 20 different aspects of our sin. 
and questions related to it in different aspects. Okay. Although the overall theme is pretty straightforward, we are unrighteous and we deserve God's wrath. That point is fairly easily understood, but the ramifications and, again, ins and outs of it are, are rather extensive. And so therefore, I ended up averaging two and a quarter verses per sermon on this section. God does not want us to have a general understanding of sin. God doesn't want us to merely say at the end of our prayers, and please forgive us for our sins, amen. He wants us to be aware of the extent of our sin and how far short we do fall. He wants us as much as we can to have his view of us and how sinful we actually are. Again, we tend to think that we're pretty good. But Paul's been saying, actually, that's not the case. Now, my role as the prophet and the role of any, uh, anybody's role as God's prophet is to precisely put insight into the text that he has given, to give understanding in the preaching and the teaching of his word. And so the God-given task of the prophet is to do all that we can to let God's word speak for itself without adding to what it says, without taking away from what it says, and without generalizing his word. And so therefore, I've tried to stay on topic as best as I can going through these verses. I have addressed some implications, yes, and there have been several times I've said, let me go forward just a minute here and then we'll come back to the point. Many times I have hinted as what, uh, uh, to what is to come and that Paul's initial point, of course, is not the whole message. But now that we come to this major turning point in his book, I am compelled to say a few additional things before we move on. I am compelled, if you will, to round out a few ideas first to give us a fuller understanding of these ideas of sin, righteousness, and obedience. And the reason is largely this. Paul does not completely finish his main ideas about sin and righteousness until we get to the end of chapter 8. Yes, he will address some more things after that, but we really need to get through chapter 8 to understand the fullness of what he is trying to say about our sin and righteousness. And so due to the amount of time it's going to take to cover that, plus we had decided to stop after chapter 4 and then go do a study of a portion of Revelation, and then back to the Psalms, and then back to Romans. Because of the time frame in between, I think it's important for me to, if you will, uh, finish his thought to some degree up through chapter 8. And I, I will endeavor to do that here this morning. Okay. <clears throat> so here's why. So first of all then, the first thing that Paul has been teaching us about sin and righteousness, and this is the point we've just looked at in this first section, is that no one's righteous. Not Jew, not Gentile, not Christian, not non-Christian, no one. In and of ourselves, no one is righteous since the fall of Adam and Eve. Okay? No one has ever done anything to merit any blessing from God. No thought, no word, no deed has ever been or ever will be perfect until heaven. Again, Jesus is our only exception to this. 
And so all of us deserve wrath. The abortion doctor, as well as the most mature Christian. In this way, in and of ourselves, we are under wrath. But the second point that Paul is now going to make in this second section here, verses 21 through 26, here in chapter 3, Paul will now describe for us how we are made righteous in God's sight. But it begins with how we are declared to be righteous. We turn from 64 verses now to 6. We turn from a section with 2 plus verses per sermon now to probably 2 plus verses, excuse me, ver, sorry, 2 plus sermons per verse. There's so much to say in these verses too. Paul is always careful in what he says. That's especially the case in this paragraph. This is easily the most important section in the letter. And some have tried to make the case that this paragraph is the most important paragraph ever written. I do think Genesis 1 is pretty important, but you can understand the point. This is so important for what he is saying. And his primary point is this. God provides the righteousness for his people that we lack. And he has done so by sending his son to obey perfectly for us, something we cannot do. And then, of course, Jesus has come to take the punishment that we deserve. Paul will also explain how God does this without violating his character, his promises, and the principles of justice. Okay. So, no longer then are we unable to rise above a zero on this scale of 1 to 100 in terms of our righteousness. Again, in and of ourselves, we're down at zero. But now, God declares us, Paul says, to be 100%, to be perfectly righteous. And that's because of Christ. By accepting Christ's perfect righteousness in our place, we now then are declared 100% righteous. Truly amazing. God looks at us and no longer sees us as we are, but he sees us in Christ. But of course, it's not because of anything that we have done. Not even our faith in him causes God to do anything, but it's because of his electing grace, the work of Christ, and the work of the Spirit in us. When we trust in Jesus to be our Lord and Savior... From the wrath that we deserve, we are no longer under law, we are no longer under uh, wrath, but we are under grace, and we are under blessing. Absolutely nothing do we bring to this situation. It's all of grace. And so here's the second point, and here's the point that we will develop in these six verses here in the weeks to come. But really, the primary reason why I want to add this sermon here is because of his third point in regard to righteousness, and uh, because he's not going to really develop it until especially chapter 6 and following. And the point is simply this. Though we are declared to be 100% here on this scale of righteousness, 
We aren't actually. We're still way down at the bottom. Okay? You might think of it as somebody who, uh, a teacher who grades papers. Okay? Do you start with 100 and take off a little bit? Or do you start at zero and add up? Well, God says, yep, you got 100% in your test because of Jesus. But we're still down here at zero. And he is gradually building us up. As slaves of God, Paul's going to say in chapter 6, that we now can and should strive to be righteous. In chapter 7, as we read here a little bit ago, Paul is saying that we constantly fail in this. We constantly fall short of God's standard, and we will until heaven. In chapter 8, Paul then elaborates on the work of the Holy Spirit who enables us to grow in actual righteousness, or as some have said, to become what we've been declared to be. We are declared to be perfectly righteous. Sanctification is that process where the Spirit is working with us to actually make us righteous in His sight. So on the one hand, we're perfect. Okay? And God treats us as such. Because we are in Christ. But on the other hand, we're still way down on this list, this uh, scale, I should say, of righteousness. Because God has given us a new heart through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we're not at zero anymore. There is actually positive righteousness that God has put in us through our regeneration. And so we have, what, come up in single digits or something like that? You know, we've come up a little bit here on the scale just simply because God has given us a new heart. Now we no longer only love sin. Now we no longer only hate God. Before conversion, that was the case. But now we have a mixture of love for God and still some hatred for God. We now have a mixture of love for our neighbor, love for righteous things, love for what is good. But we still have that old nature in us, that old man, that part of us, that law in us that Paul talks about there in Romans 7 that still is against what is good and right. And there will be this battle until glory. And so what Paul is especially emphasizing is that even God's people who do rank on the scale are so far short of perfection that really it should not cause God to bless us in any way. We're still worthy of wrath because we are so far short of actual perfection and righteousness. Everything we do is mixed with sin. Now, God does not judge us because of Christ, but God only blesses us ultimately because of Christ too, because even our best deeds are filthy rags, right? Everything we do is mixed with sin. There's nothing we do that is perfectly righteous in any way. 
And so God blesses us. He blesses our efforts of righteousness because Jesus was perfect and secured blessings. If it weren't for that, he wouldn't give us any blessings. Okay. And so one of the things that Paul is driving at as we go along, and we just read Romans 7 a bit ago, is that we must admit to ourselves how far short we still fall from his glory. And it's because of this point, I've said some of the things that I've said in going through chapters 1 to 3. As unbelievers, we're at a zero. As believers, we now, by God's giving us a new heart, have some positive goodness. Our efforts at obeying our covenant Lord do rank on this scale. But the biggest problem that we have as Christians is we think we're far higher on the scale than we actually are. And that's part of what Paul is driving at in chapter 2. He's talking about the critical moralizer there at the beginning, right? He's talking about the Jew, and especially in verses 17 and following. And we, we think we're pretty high on the scale. And Paul says, you're not even close. You're actually at a zero, is what he's saying in chapter 2. But even now, as we move past chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, he's still saying, you're, <clears throat> you're way down here yet. Our tendency, of course, is to acknowledge that we're not perfect. <clears throat> Yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we usually think we're somewhere in the 80s or 90s, don't we? There actually have been some people who have tried to make the case that we can achieve 100% righteousness before heaven. That argument has never made any sense to me at all. But some have said it. Okay, perfectionism, it's called. <clears throat> the Methodist tradition, for example. So let me give you a couple of uh, analogies to, to help with this, uh, this thought. <clears throat> hey, let me use Matthew's basketball team as an example here. He is in the fourth through sixth grade basketball team there at CLA. And now after yesterday, they have played seven games against teams from Erie and Titiute in particular. And, um, yeah, they won them pretty easily. I think the one game was 57 to 19 or something like that. Okay. And then there was another one where it would have been that big, but they kept putting in some of the younger players and such because generally they have two teams, fourth and fifth graders, and then fifth and sixth graders. And anyway, okay. so even the less talented players were running circles around some of these other teams. Felt pretty good about themselves. Okay. Doing better than last year. And so, you know, they're thinking, hey, we're getting pretty high in this list. Well, on Tuesday, they played Cranberry, a public school with more players, bigger players, better players. And they did pretty well, but they easily lost. 18 to 10 and 22 to 9, I think it was, or something like that, right? Hey, they held their own in some ways, but certainly not in others. The younger team of this group, they didn't even score a point. They could barely get past half court. It was rather painful. 
Okay? But against these other teams, they had either won or tied. Do you see the analogy here? In the game of righteousness, so to speak, when we play against other people, we can easily think that we're pretty high on this list. Especially when we compare ourselves to unbelievers or new believers or less mature believers than we think of ourselves. And this is often the case for those of us who have been Christians for many years. We think too highly of ourselves. And we can delude ourselves into thinking that we're on the 80s or 90s of this scale. Like Matthew's basketball team before they played Cranberry. You know, one of the things that happens at this age group of basketball is the refs don't call too many uh, penalties of any kind, either a foul or travel or double dribble or, you know, whatever. And, um, again, you can get this impression that you're doing pretty well. But when we compare ourselves to God's law without changing it, when we compare ourselves to God himself, it puts us in our place, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is trying to say here in chapters 1 to 8. Okay? Don't compare yourself to another human being. Compare yourself to God. Don't compare yourself to a law that we've changed. Compare yourself to God's law as given, his standard. Okay? And when we do, we then begin to have God's view of us. We begin to recognize where we actually are on this scale of righteousness. Let me give another analogy here. <clears throat> Excuse me, baseball season's going to start here pretty soon. At least the pitchers will report to uh, training camp and such. So think of batting averages here for a moment. Right? If a player bats 250, they're going to get paid millions of dollars. Now think about this 25 times out of 100, they get a hit, 75 times they get out, and they're going to get paid millions of dollars. Let's just add five. Say somebody's batting 300. That means 30 times out of 100 they get on base and 70 times they get out. Now they're going to get paid tens of millions of dollars. And if you happen to get five more hits and you bat 350, 35 out of 100, 65 times you get out, now you'll be leading the league in batting average and be considered one of the best hitters ever if you maintain that status. But you know, that, that really is a description of where we are as Christians. Okay? Some of us might bat 200, but probably most of us who are mature in our faith are batting somewhere between 250 and 350 on this scale. God is growing us in righteousness by the work of his spirit. We do gradually do good things in God's sight. It is so far below the standard 
that we have to remember where we actually are. You know, last week uh, in the evening in 2 Samuel 6, we saw David and Uzzah seek to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And they're feeling good about themselves. 30,000 people show up for this great event. They're going to bring the ark to Jerusalem, do something that Saul never did. Uh, this is great. I'm sure they were thinking, God's happy with us, right? We're in the 80s or 90s or something like that. Well, it wasn't long. They found out that they might have been in the single digits. <laughs> they broke the law. And Oza died. Good intentions, which make us think we're higher, right, isn't necessarily where we are in reality. Back to Romans 2, this holier-than-thou kind of person who readily criticizes someone else, who thinks they're high on the scale, is the one that Paul is talking about. This is what he is addressing here in this third point. So as I said before, our very best righteous thoughts, words, and actions are still mixed with so much sin that I wonder if the godliest person who has ever lived, and some would say Paul is pretty close to that, again, other than Jesus, has anybody ever crossed the threshold of 50? In our minds, we think we have, but in actuality, in God's sight, has that actually been the case? What Paul is wanting to tell us here in chapters, especially 6 through 8, and even with chapter 5, is he's wanting us to recognize we need to humble ourselves, and we need to recognize that the only way we can do this is with the work of the Spirit in us, and by using the means of grace that he has given to us. Now let me approach it here in a little different direction. For the times that we think well of our righteousness, God is pleased with our efforts, but it's more like a parent who gets excited when the child first learns to sit up on their own, or takes baby steps, or learns to feed themselves, or maybe learns to ride a bike without training wheels. God is genuinely happy and pleased with our efforts because, again, he sees Christ to bring us up to 100, and it's God's Spirit working in us to help us to do these things. Compared to some of the best athletes in the world, and right now, of course, we have the the Australian Open going on, so you think of Djokovic and Alcaraz and Zverev and Medvedev. I mean, these are some incredible athletes. Or with football here, the championship games this weekend, you know, you got Mahomes and, and Lamar Jackson. I mean, some amazing athletes. Well, that's kind of the comparison. You know, you've got this really high compared to baby steps. And God looks at us and he gets excited when we do small things. He is pleased with our efforts at genuine righteousness. But again, he can only do that because Jesus meets the rest. Not just in our justification, but in our sanctification. 
God looks at me, and maybe I've got a 12 today, and he says, okay, Jesus met the, the other 88 for you. I'm going to bless you because of Jesus, ultimately. And so he rewards our feeble efforts because of him, like the parent who cheers excitedly. And so here are our, our main points. Left to ourselves, we must come to terms with the reality that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We're enslaved, we enjoy sin, and we hate God. And those ideas, those motivations, are still in us. Secondly, Jesus has been righteous for us. And for those whom God has elected, and for those who believe in Christ, we are treated as 100% righteous and as pleasing to God. But our third point, and that is the point of sanctification, is that from the moment of conversion until heaven, God is gradually taking us from 0 to 100 in actual righteousness. Regeneration begins it. God works in us. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we gradually, slowly, ascend to this scale. Some days, it may seem like we've slipped. Not two steps forward, one step back, but the other way around. But God will bring to completion what he has begun in us, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. And so let us always remember these ideas that our best efforts are really only impressing ourselves and maybe a few others. For all of my love for God, it's still mixed with hatred. For all of my love for others, it's still mixed with selfishness. But don't give up. Hey, that's our tendency, right? Just, uh, I'm never going to get there, so why bother? That's not a way a Christian thinks. Jesus tells us to persevere, to overcome, to press on. And the more we look to God and his law, the more we rest in him, the more we will grow in this way. Let's turn then to Romans 7. And let me highlight a few of these verses that we read a little bit ago. In verse 21, Romans 7. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. He cannot be talking about an unbeliever because an unbeliever does not will to do good. He's talking about himself as a Christian. So he wills to do good because his heart's been changed, but there's still this evil within. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Right? Everybody of us here who's Christian, we do that, right? But, verse 23, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You hear what Paul is saying. There's a battle within. 
But again, we are a long way from 100%. Do not fall prey to the idea of thinking you're in the 80s or 90s, because you're not. I'm not. None of us are. In chapter 8, he then especially emphasizes the work of the Spirit to make all this happen. And so we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're going before the Lord in prayer, asking for his help. So then let's turn to Philippians 3. We read this here the last couple weeks or so. And let me again read. Now, last week we looked at verses 7 and following. Now verse 12. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Right? We don't give up <coughs> just because we, we're so far short. Well, we press on. We have the attitude like Paul here. We realize that we're not yet there. So the next uh, verse, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Right? I haven't arrived yet. <clears throat> so one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are ahead. Sometimes you hear people say, let's not be navel gazers. You know, let's not focus so much on our sin that we're not looking to Christ. Okay, so he presses on. He looks ahead. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so be realistic about who you actually are in your righteousness. But don't give up when you realize where you actually are. Keep striving to honor God, to serve him, to bless others. So, as I said at the beginning, Paul, in this first section, is giving us point one. We're going to turn to point two. But because we don't get to point three for a long time, <coughs> excuse me, based on our plans, I thought I would put it all together here today. And so let's pray together. Father and God, we come before you today, and we are grateful <clears throat> for your word, grateful that your word exposes us <clears throat> and teaches us who we really are. <clears throat> Certainly in very positive ways that we are made in your image, and uh, yet also showing us our sin. <clears throat> our Father, we are thankful that you have not treated us as we deserve, but you sent forth your Son to be righteous for us and to take the righteous wrath that we deserve. 
And we are thankful, too, that you have then started us now on this process of sanctification, of becoming actually righteous. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit in this way. And we pray, maybe especially here today, that you would give us a proper view of ourselves and that you would not allow us to think more highly than we ought, but to have your view, a view of a rejoicing parent over rather minor accomplishments in comparison to what you expect. But we are thankful, Lord, that you do treat us this way and that you have not left us to ourselves. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would... Help us in our thinking, and then help us in our applying this truth. Strengthen us, Lord, to actually become righteous in your sight through the means you have given, through the spirit that you have granted to us. Lord, we we truly marvel that you would do anything like this. And so, Lord, we... We give you thanks, we give you praise, we boast in you. And so again, Lord, we ask to be humbled rightly in your presence. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.